Welcome to the Human Centered Leadership Podcast with me, your host, Kulmahe. I have worked in the leadership space for three decades, and now I work with organizations and leaders to develop powerful cultures of high value and performance that is built all around their people. We will interview leaders from around the world and at the very top end of their game to explore what emotional intelligence in practice actually looks like and the benefits that it could bring to any team. This is a movement to transform the way that we see leadership and to create powerful cultures where people feel seen, heard, valued and appreciated and consequently perform to the very best. Why don't you join the movement and subscribe to our podcast and don't forget to click on notifications to stay up to date with all new content. Welcome to our first ever episode of the Human Centered Leadership Podcast. I'm so excited uh, to be embarking on this venture. Uh, it's something that uh, I've had in my mindset for the last two years and just never got around to it, but I think the timing is just right now. With everything that the world has gone through uh, in terms of COVID-19, lockdown, people working remotely, the things like the Great Resignation, which uh, I'm sure I'm going to mention in other podcasts, I thought the timing was right now to start talking about leadership and a different kind of leadership. And I wanted on my very first podcast somebody who I knew very well uh, and somebody who was a dear friend of mine and who I respected as a leader. So I'm very, very uh, excited and honoured to have on my show today Keith Fraser. Keith is the chair of the Youth Justice Board for England and Wales, a, a very senior and very responsible position. But Keith and I also shared a very similar past. So Keith was also a superintendent in a different force, in the West Midlands Police uh, Force, and I was, of course, in Dobshire Constabulary. But, of course, we've known each other or about each other for a long time, and over the last few years we've reconnected and got to know each other more. I have a lot of time for Keith. So, Keith, welcome to the podcast, and welcome and congratulations on being the first guest. Thank you for inviting me. It's quite nerve-wracking to be the first guest. <laughs> it's quite nerve-wracking to be the interviewer on the first podcast as well, Keith. Um, I, I mean, I particularly wanted you on this podcast uh, because I wanted to discuss with you some of the conversations that you and I have had many, many times before. And I remember that uh, in each conversation we've said to each other, wouldn't it be great if we could just record this conversation? So that's exactly what we're going to do today. Exciting. I suppose what you're trying to do and what you're embarking on, I think, is excellent. What you're trying to achieve, so fully back it. Thank you so much, Keith. Well, I mean, I think it's it's important that the listeners and the viewers for this podcast and this YouTube series actually get to know more about you. So tell us about your leadership values and what inspired you to embrace this whole style of human-centered leadership. It's a mixture of personal experience and also a mixture of watching other people. And, and you, you pick up over time what works. And also, you and I, we both travelled through organisations, haven't we? We've, we've worked at the coalface, so to speak. And we've also been in positions of, of influence. One of the things that, I, that will always stay with me, you don't forget how it feels when you are working as part of a team that's working well or you're part of an organisation that's working well, and you don't forget how it feels when you're inside an organisation where you just don't feel like you're fit or you've got to force yourself to kind of fit in with it. So it's very much around using my own personal feeling around what works 
when you're working with people and working alongside people and also around looking and seeing what others have done uh, both good and, and not so good and then taking the best elements out of that hopefully but it's just my own personal personal view I think that's a very strong view and you know one that resonates with me Keith because uh, one of the points that you make is uh, around trying to fit into an organization or there's an expectation that you fit into an organization uh, one of the experiences that I have you know if you are going to be a highly emotionally intelligent leader or a human centered leader as we call it uh, sometimes you don't necessarily fit in you actually stand out in the organization uh, and and what drove it for me in terms of me sustaining that leadership style were my values and so would your values be uh, at the very core of what you are and who you are who you show up to be as a leader they're actually absolutely at the center and one of the things are that it, it takes I, I don't know how many people spend an awful lot of time trying to work out what their values are but it's absolutely critical mm. that you know what makes you tick and why you do what you do and my values are based around community, team and trust. Now I'm there to do things for people, it might sound a bit trite, a bit naff, but that, that's the thing that drives me, is around supporting and helping other people in all sorts of different ways. The way I like to achieve it is through working with a team. Some people like to work as individuals and get things done in that way. I like to work through, through teams and get things done in that way. So that, that's what works for me. And then finally, the word trust. Anybody that knows me and has worked alongside me will hear me go on about the word trust. Anybody who's been part of an organisation I've had any influence in will hear me talk about the word trust. And I think the word trust is so critical because relationships and how you get things done should all be based on trust. It leads to longer lasting, more sustainable and also better solutions. You just think about the things that you try to do and if trust is not there, how long it takes you to achieve it and how much you need to check to make, how many things you need to do to check to make sure things are happening. Just think about the relationship between somebody who runs a team when they don't trust the individuals that they're, that they're managing, leading, looking after. You know, they're going to have to put all sorts of mechanisms in place to check on what their staff are doing. If you build up a trustworthy relationship, that check and balance that you have to put in place becomes far less. I would suggest that a lot of the things that we have in society at the moment are because of that lack of trust in society. If you look at contracts, for example, if you're entering into a, a business arrangement with somebody else and you look at the length of contracts that, w that you have now, that's because we don't know each other and we don't trust each other. So you put a whole load of conditions and clauses in place to cover all of those parts where somebody might let you down or another organisation might let you down. Those are the challenges of trust. You know, you think about a simple thing like going on holiday. Before, I think I look back to sort of like 40 odd years ago, and I know I don't look over 40 years of age, going through airport security didn't take too long you used to kind of breeze through cursory glance and stuff like that but over time things have happened whereby trust has broken down between the passenger and the airline or government that are transporting them so now measures have had to be put in place increased measures in order that the security can trust you to actually get onto that plane and not be something that's going to be present a risk to somebody 
So if you start to look at trust um, through that through that lens in everything that we do, you then suddenly start to see how it has a massive impact on how we live our lives. You think about how public services, how they're mm-hmm. provided, and whether or not people have faith in that in that service. You think about the people that you're working with in in, in business. It is just fundamental. But I'm just surprised at how many organisations don't place trust and trustworthiness at the heart of what they're doing. I cannot agree more. I cannot agree more. I mean, loads to unpack there, uh, Keith. One of the big things is uh, is the issue around values. Uh, and you are very clear about your values. It's taken me a long time to be absolutely crystal clear about what my values are. But I'm always shocked and surprised by the number of organisations I go into and I work with these organisations. I might end up working with a, a group of senior officers and I'll say to them, so what are your individual core values? And they'll inevitably look at a wall and point at some document on the wall, some post and say, those are my values. And I say, well, no, they're not. They are the values of your organization. What are your individual values? And then we have to go through an exercise where they, you know, discover their values. And it's always an eye opening exercise. Um, And the issue around trust, uh, it's a big one for me. And I don't know if you've read the book, uh, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Lenciani. It's a book that I absolutely recommend. But it talks about why do teams break down at the very fundamental level? It is this issue of trust. Now, once you have trust and you've picked it up in so many different areas, whether it's societal, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, developing relationships, whether it's in an organization or a team, trust is always there right at the very, very heart of things. If you have trust, then you are more likely to have a functioning team or a functioning relationship. Uh, and emotional intelligence is, if nothing else, it's about relationships. It's about us forming phenomenally powerful relationships. So that being the case, what do you think are the key elements of behaving? You know, if 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 an, if somebody listening to this now or watching this would say, do you know what? I think we are lacking trust in my team, in my organization, in my relationship. What would be, you think, the key elements that they should start working on right now to develop more trust? There's a couple of things that kind of spring to mind for me. If you're talking about in an organization, well, there's this grandiose thing called organizational justice and I'm quite happy to unpack that highfalutin term and ex- explain what I mean by that and put that into practice there's also the bit around culture and I can you know unpack that as well and there's also the bit around the environment which you want to create and that is around you as an individual so I think how you behave first of all is absolutely critical and fundamental to actually creating that trustworthy relationship and so for me i've got four key stages to that and that's about listening i don't think we all listen to each other properly really we kind of we can't often listen Mm. to interrupt understand so you then understand and try and understand what that other person that other person's perspective or the other organization's perspective then involves so whatever process it is that you're going through with the other individual involves them and then finally it's action how often do we listen and then move straight to action and we haven't listened properly therefore we've not understood people haven't felt part of the solution or felt part of how you've got to your decision about what you're going to do you take action 
and then you suddenly got some key kind of challenges and um, issues at, at the end of it. Culture, or uh, culture is something which people see as quite complex, but I think it can be broken down into kind of three things, particularly when you're looking at it from an organisational pers- perspective. And one is you've got the um, culture around how is it kind of, what's the kind of physical thing when you go into perhaps the building, is it a smart office block or is it something that looks a bit unkempt and not very well read, you know, oh, the nice pictures on the wall or awful pictures on the wall, you know, what's the physical fabric of the environment that you're going into? Secondly, what are the espoused cultures? So what are the senior leadership saying? What are the values that are up on the wall or on the telly or on that ticker tape or that LED screen? And then finally, what, what happens? What, what are the actual, what's actually being done? How does it, what kind of behaviours are being displayed? What are the norms of how people actually behave in that organisation? So I would suggest that you need to marry up all of those things in an organisation in order to ensure that you really understand the culture of, of the organisation. I, and, I, and I can give you an, an example of that in a bit if you want. And then finally, the organisational justice bit, which is quite similar to the cultural piece, and that's the impact, and I like to twist it a couple of ways around, that's the impact of the organisation on its individuals or the impact of how it delivers the service. And it's three things, right, is the process fair, um, are the outputs fair and then also does it feel fair for the person that's actually actually going going through it and that feeds into something else I was talking about the other day when it comes to diversity so um, you know we have been going around for decades and you and I have been around in the leadership space for at least three decades each I would have thought um, but over those three decades, you and I will both have seen um, organisations going through the cycle of similar phraseology, similar strategy, um, different names, different titles, but similar concepts going around and round and around and around, but nothing really truly being achieved, no real significant difference being made. One of my viewpoints is that... Uh, uh, we are chasing um, outputs as a, as opposed to endemically changing the culture, getting down to the root cause. So one of my arguments is that uh, you know we we chase diversity targets, for example, but we're not chasing cognitive diversity, which is true diversity, a diversity of thought to move us away from group thinking, to move us away from echo chambers, and only when you achieve that cognitive diversity do you truly create innovation within your organisation, and. Um, what what do you think around you know when you talk about culture what what is a healthy culture for you i think a healthy culture i think i think it's quite simple really one that recognizes the messiness of people and how messy individuals are and by messy i mean that it's we shouldn't be putting people into boxes I know that for some things in relation to try and understand how fair an organisation is is treating other treating you know different elements of that and how many people you've managed to recruit for this or 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 whatever but I think to really really create a fair inclusive environment you need to recognise that there's not one individual that can be put into a box even if you look at this skin colour, 
I'm not sure what you see. Do you see somebody who comes from Scunthorpe, Manchester, London, Africa, <laughs> Jamaica? What you know? What what do you Keith, see? I'll tell you what I see. Whenever I look at you, I see this huge smile everywhere you go. <laughs> it's like a trademark. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> but I suppose the way we are brings out kind of assumptions. So that as a result of those assumptions, you then suddenly start to stick me into a box. It's only natural. But what you're talking about, about this human-centred approach, I think is around recognising the fact, not being ashamed about the fact we put people into boxes, but recognising the fact that we do it and then really trying to dismantle that. And I think that's one of the big organisational challenges is trying to get to understand the real variety of people that you have within organisations. Number one, around how do you cater for that difference in an organisation? And then number two, how do you make the best use of that difference within your within your organisation? And I've seen many examples of where we've tried to make sure that everybody gets treated the same. I don't agree with that. People need to be treated according to their needs. And that has just fallen flat and it's caused all sorts of challenges and issues within the, within the organisation. And then also you have people recruited into organisations and then we're not using the diverse talents of those individuals and therefore people kind of get frustrated because they just become a number and they feel kind of worthless or assumptions are made about them. It could be because they're a man and they can't deal with particular things in policing or it could be because they're a woman and they're expected to deal with certain things in policing, for example. It is around that real openness around recognizing that difference but it's it's recognizing difference with a purpose i call it it's recognizing difference with the person so the environment yeah i love it's right for that difference and then two you're getting the best out of that individual support the organizational needs i love the phrase that you've used there that people are messy human beings tend to be messy we are very complex creatures uh, and that's part of the beauty of who we are. And, you know, that's why human-centered leadership really appeals. Sometimes I feel that to be a human-centered leader, you have to work that bit harder. Uh, but the results are incredible. Now, many uh, many a time when I've gone to speak to a client around uh, any area of cultural change, emotional intelligence, uh, leadership, they will say to me, so what are the tangible benefits of cultural change? And sometimes that's very hard to quantify. Uh, what have been some of the benefits that you've noticed as a result of your leadership style? And you're still working at very, very senior levels, leading teams. What are the benefits that you see as a result of your human-centered leadership style? I, th I think the, 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 the real benefits of, of, of that are is, is recognizing that difference and then people then feeling that they're able to be themselves more in that organization then give them give more of themselves without the assumptions being made some very quick examples here when i was a di we were providing quite a poor service to victims of serious sexual assaults now in relation to the response times now to cut a long story short the reason behind that was that well-meaning individuals were only sending female police officers to support survivors and victims of serious sexual assaults. But we had a whole host of male officers there that had been trained, but they were never called upon for their service. I remember those days well. And even when I conducted the review initially, the reviewing officer didn't pick up 
on that difference, despite the fact that you know we had this whole group of trained officers. The male officers were not used at all. Once we brought them in all into the pot together, we were able to provide a better service to the victim who had asked for our help, and also we able to we were able to use our our people better. But we were initially blinded because we had assumptions about individuals. There was a time in the workplace whereby um, one of the organisations part were going through significant change, and uh, it was potentially leading to a lot of redundancies, and a lot of staff were distressed. They were un- unhappy, unsure about the circumstances, whether or not they were going to have a job in the future. Now, before in the past, you would have just left them and said, "Well, the process is in place. You know, they'll either get a re-interview or they'll be made redundant, and and, and that is it." But I, I decided to do something different. I actually called together all of those members of staff. It was in the police. There were police staff. And I actually got together to, you know, to under, and I sat down with them and to try and understand what they were going through. A lot of them, it was their first job at the police station. They'd been there for 20-odd years and hadn't been interviewed since. They live locally. And they were absolutely terrified about going through an interview. Some of them had... Um, you know, were about ready and sort of thought, oh, this might be a good opportunity for me to go. Others were really scared about, can I pay the bills? You know, how do I prepare myself for a CV? And some of them just needed some general coaching and support for themselves as individuals. So what I did as a, as a result of that was, one, I assigned a member of the senior management team to actually be the point of contact in relation to information so that they understood what was going on. Two, assign some individuals to act as mentors for those members of police staff so that they could prepare themselves for interviews for the, for the future and also around CV preparation as well. And also I held those meetings regularly in the future just to understand what the concerns were of staff and what I found from recognising their distress, recognising their upset, recognising anxiety and fear that they were going through, despite the fact that there was still, you know, their positions were still uncertain, they still didn't know what was going to happen in the future. Yes. They felt better prepared for that uncertainty. They felt like they had more control. So thereby, I gave those individuals hope. In, in that circumstance. So these are real kind of tangible ways that even in a difficult situation like that, whereby you're you recognising the, the challenges of that situation, you can still recognise that emotion that's going on, deal with it, not ignore it, and just say, oh, get on with it. That That's a fact. You know, the organisation's going through change. It's got to, you know, it's got to cut, it's got to cut back. We're going through the process. And as a result of that, the performance went back up within the office, the staff were engaged, the staff were more more happy, and the staff were happy to work and work better through that uncertainty. That's been absolutely my experience with this style of leadership, and it's so, it's so humbling to see that other people out there were doing very similar things around about the same time, and I remember the heartache that so many people went through when we had to make so many 
millions of pounds worth of efficiency savings across the police service and the public sector and people's livelihoods were being affected. And I think one of the things that happens when you are a human-centered leader, it's very difficult not to experience some of that pain that other people are going through. So I think one of the key things that uh, leaders need to practice, and I'm guessing over the last two years, this has been right at the forefront or should have been at the forefront of their thinking, is self-care. You can't pour from an empty cup. So in order for you to be the very best leader that you are, you have to look after yourself. Just as a final question, what, what sort of things have you done to look after yourself so that you can show up and be the very best leader that you can be to your staff? I've not always been the best at that, if I'm being, if I'm being fair. I've, I've not always been the best, but I have, over time, got more and more reflective about the about the importance of that. Mm. So some of the things for me are making sure, one, that I know in that week, and I, I know this and giving myself more time, but it's given me time to achieve, is knowing what I want to achieve mm. in that week and start to set myself lists and getting more structured trying to ensure that I get a better balance between work, my giving back and my family. Also trying to make sure as I give myself time when I'm going to stop and have time for me. That's probably one of the worst parts, if I'm being honest, in relation to what I'm achieving, is actually setting aside that that me time. But what I will do more now is I'll go for walks and stuff like that, and walks which are quite challenging, you know, 20-odd mile walks and things like that just to kind of just get myself away, get myself out of that environment. But also I think not to ignore um, what's going on for you. I went through some quite challenging situations whereby I was bullied in work. I actually ignored what was going on and blamed myself about what was what was happening at that moment in time. Um, I, was, I was diagnosed as being dyslexic and obviously I still am. It's about if you know that there is something that is happening to you, you need to deal with it and not ignore it. That's one of the biggest messages I would say to people is around being in touch with you, how you feel and making sure you do something about it and you do not you do not ignore it. Whether or not that's being doing something around making time for your own health and well-being or if something acute happens to you taking time again to take action as a result of that and not ignoring it so the damage that's being done to you culminates you know one of the challenges for me was actually doing something about my about my dyslexia you know the experience that I had initially wasn't very positive with my with the line manager I had despite the policy organization being very very good the experience of the line manager wasn't that good and also the processes in place weren't that good but I worked with other people in order to make the best out of that situation. And now, you know, I'm actually, I've actually met some phenomenal people as a result of my dyslexia and some really high performing individuals and also been able to see what I can do better than some people, I think, as a result of me, as a result of me being dyslexic. So the big thing is, is not to ignore what's happening to you and give yourself time for that self-reflection. I, I love that. And, and you know, when we are so busy as leaders, we give ourselves, make up all sorts of excuses uh, and that I'm too busy to, to challenge this or to address this and, and so forth and so on. So I think some really, really good advice there for, for leaders to check in with yourself. And we're not talking about woo-woo kind of stuff here. This is fundamental self-care 
check in with yourself if there is something happening that you know is not healthy for you is not empowering for you you need to at least address it and look at it uh, and secondly um, also take responsibility for your own growth as well you know as you have said with dyslexia you went out above and beyond what the organization and your manager was doing for you you went out to seek additional help and additional support and created a, another network around you which which has really worked uh, well for you Keith I want to say thank you so much for joining me on today's podcast it's been absolutely enlightening I've really really enjoyed it uh, we must have one of these conversations yet again uh, we must record every single conversation that we ever have not video <laughs> not video but thank you so much keith and uh, i look forward to catching up with you it's been an, a huge honor uh, to have you on the program bye-bye thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed this podcast please do subscribe and click on notifications for new content and of course connect with me on linkedin take care have a great day